something, huh? What was that? Did you hear a noise? What do you mean I did? What was that? Come on, bring it up. Somebody broke something. Get ready in there. Now, you all set in there? We're not going to let these clutches have a minute's rest there. Come on, now. That's it. Very good. This this gets the kids furious when they hear Shepard play his mandolin here. See, just minding my own business, boy, you never know. You really just don't know when you're going to get the truth. Now, it's never going to come to you in tracks, I can tell you that. It never comes to you in those long, turgid, parchment-written, graven scrolls. It'll never be handed down in a couple of big, fantastic clay tablets. No, it's just, you just never know. I'm standing there, see, in this subway car. And I'm hanging on to the subway strap. And we're rolling along that great old A train in the sky. Oh, have I ever told you the story? Do you know, do you know that, the, uh, that the subway people have their own legends? Just like seafaring men. Did, did you ever hear the legend? Seriously, the legend of the flying A train? No, there is a legend among subway men of the flying A-train. And you know, when this legend first broke out was around 1910. Let me tell you the story. Do you have Do you have a little romantic music in there? Just get me a little romantic music, please. You shall hear the story of the flying A-train. It was midwinter. The year was 1910. A cold, bitter year. A year of recrimination. A year of defeat. A year of change. A year of excitement. Over in Europe, the vast storm clouds of war were gathering. And a substitute motorman named Charles McSweeney, who lived down on Houston Street, one night was waiting in a subway station waiting for a train to take him home from work. He was carrying his lunch bucket. It was late, late on a cold, stormy night. And above ground, the wind was howling. A rising gale was coming off. The movements of the great waves crashing on the shore of New Jersey, bringing in the smell of the vast Atlantic Ocean. And he sat and picked his teeth. A small sliver of salami had hooked itself in his bicuspids hours before, and he was entertaining himself, fishing for it. He would suck occasionally. It was a dark night, and he was alone in the subway station, in the train station, waiting for his train to take him home to his little love nest. He'd only been married three months before on Houston Street. 
And suddenly, he was aware of a slight, a slight vibration of the ground. He stood up. He had been sitting on a bench, a regular subway station bench. He stood up and straightened his back. was a little sore from long hours of work. He reached down, picked up his lunchbox, tugged at his cap, rolled up his paper and stuck it in his back pocket and waited for that great train to come bearing down out of that dark tunnel off to his right. He felt the ground thundering under him when suddenly out of the darkness roared a train, a darkened A-train, roared out of the darkness, no light, no lights in the windows. And he looked into the cabin where the pilot stayed and there was nothing but a blank space. And the train... It was gone. A darkened, empty train had roared along that A-line, thundering its way from nowhere to no place. And it was not on the schedule. And since that day, that train has been seen three times. Three separate occasions, a decade removed. And when old trainmen gather at the car barns, old motormen sitting over their beer, they speak of the flying A-train. That A-train that forever and ever and ever is searching for the love of a good woman. A good woman and never finding. You didn't know that story. Yeah. Well, you never know when you're going to get the truth, see? And I'm standing there in this in this A train, and I got a hold of the the hanging strap, see? I want the other other one now. Now, just you get it ready in there, Mario. See? I'm hanging on the old hanging strap, see? And the place is mobbed and packed. It's the holiday season, and. Uh, and the train, you know, you know how the train when, when it goes over those little clickety clickety clickety, and we stop and people get on and people get off and they're getting packed tighter and tighter, and I'm 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 suddenly aware of a hot breath that's just just wafting over about fifteen or twenty of us, and it's it's the hot breath of good old J B Scotch, it's just it's drifting down, and standing about sixteen people away from me was a man in his cups. And he's reeling back and forth, and he's looking up, and as he looks up, he's reading the car cards. You know those cards that read, do you offend? You know those cards? Those cards that say, uh, does she? Only her hairdresser knows whether she does or doesn't. And he's hanging there. And by George, right there in front of him, I'll never forget this, the moment of truth. It says, help keep New York. Help keep New York plastered. Have you seen that sign? It says... Keep New York plastic. and the Rudy Oh, you want to hear the ballad of the double E train? Oh, well, that's nothing, of course. Keeping New York plastic. We're living right in the middle of it, fella. We're all sitting here on the. We're sitting here on the edge of this fantastic. This fantastic Roman swimming pool. The dolphins are disporting themselves. Somewhere off in the distance, the gladiators are belting each other over the head with maces and swords. And we're sitting here stuffing the old grapes on the trap. Hollering for more women. 
more women, and stronger wine. Da, 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 da. Here, for example, is a little gift that I'm sure many of you are either about to get or have already gotten for Christmas. The balloon drink detective. Yes, it says, what's your AQ? You blow up a balloon. This at a party can be amusing and usually is. But our device has a more serious purpose to test the amount of alcohol in your system. Your alcoholic quotient as a warning against driving and just for a fun game. Yes, inflate the tube, let the air filter through the latter, and in a moment you know whether you should stop drinking, have a couple of more, or just go to bed. A thoughtful, meaningful gift for the Christmas shopping or for the holiday period ahead. Stuff that little, stuff that little socking with the uh, Santa's little friendly gifties here. Can't you just see this guy reeling out there, trying out his Christmas gift? <laughs> and that goes right along with this one here. I think you might have seen this one. Lights up, friends. Battery-operated beer glass. <laughs> yes, new gift idea for creative beer drinkers. Unique 12-ounce glass lights up to add to your pleasure as you knock down the suds. Light turns on and off from base connection. Yes, uses one penlight battery, which is included. Rechargeable. Satisfaction guaranteed. Three colors available. Just remember, friends, help keep New York plastered. We also have a little gift suggestion here from one of the catalogs that says, Wine-making kit, America's newest hobby. Wonderful for children. They learn chemistry that way. Just let it go into the next cut, Mario. That's all right. They're all the same. Bring it up there. That's very good. Oh, blow it out, Dad. Wow, 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 wow. You know, speaking of that, uh, always uh, yeah, that business of the uh, that uh, you know that whole holiday whoopee world. I remember one time when I'm this kid. See, I had there was one thing that I was extremely proud of. Keep that cut up. That's a great cut. You just keep that cut, the one you just played there, because I'm going to use that. I'm going to need that one. That the, each one of us, as kids, we have a, we've all uh, as as when we were kids, we've all had a cross to bear, of one type or another, and generally that cross was related with our parents, or to our parents, or something our parents did, in one way or another, and one of my uh, it was a mingled cross and blessing. It was very hard to tell. My father, I don't think I've ever told this on the air. I really. Uh, I maybe should say this for the limelight some night. But my father... Shucks, I don't know whether I ought to tell it. No, no, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm leaving myself wide open to all kinds of rotten, jazzy remarks, and I just don't want to do that. Uh, people have written me many times that, Shepard, uh, you must have showbiz in your veins. Was there anybody in your family who was in showbiz? Well, no, not exactly. That is officially... Uh, but my father was a standard Midwestern type. 
who, by the way, also was written up. That kind of guy was written up by Sinclair Lewis. He was written up by guys like uh, George Ade. My father was a famous and very, very well-recognized life of the party. And yes, he was. I might I, I admit this. And there used to be that phrase, whenever we would go to people's houses, wherever it was, the old man was always, immediately, as soon as the door would open, you know, we'd go into the house, we're going to visit uh, somebody like Bernice and Ernie, that kind of scene. We go in, Bernice, all families, uh, if you come from my kind of family, you then know that your mother and father had a whole group of friends, of which three or four of them were recognized drunks. Uh, of one kind or another, there was a crying drunk, there was the fighting drunk, and they would sit down or they were deciding to have a party, they would decide whether or not to have Clarence, because Clarence is a fighting drunk. Now, if it's a birthday party, we can invite Clarence, because Clarence is, we're not going to have anything, they're just a little punch, he won't get drunk and he won't fight then. And uh, we can invite Tom, of course, Tom cries a lot, but because the party's going to be in the afternoon and the sun is coming in, and uh, it's going to be an afternoon party with a lot of card playing and that, he won't cry, he doesn't cry until it gets around midnight. And they should be home by then. You know, all this kind of stuff, Tom and Clara and, and all. And, and the old man, though, was recognized as the life of the party. He really was. He, if, if, uh, if there had been television then, the old man, really, seriously, he would have probably been uh, soupy sales. He was that kind of guy, you know. Any, anything for a laugh. Hat, the funny hat on the top. He'd, immediately, he'd run into the house. The door would open. And I was always embarrassed, you know, right away. The door would open and you'd hear this whole crowd. Whoa! He's here! Oh, what's he going to do? And the old man would say, here I am! He'd whip his hat off, and then he would start doing, he'd start doing his famous snake dance. He was recognized for this dance. He would do a snake dance. Don't ask me what a snake dance is. That was famous throughout all the people. They'd always say, get old man Shepard to do a snake dance. Well, he would put a lampshade on his head, so help me, I'm telling you. In fact, he's the only life of the party I ever knew who carried his own lampshade with him. Well, you know, I mean, you can't always find the lampshade that fits your head in a house where you just had living. And so he carried a lampshade that had a sweatband inside of it. He wore it so much. Even had a chin strap, you know. And had a little fringe hanging. And he put this thing on the top of his head. And instantly, you'd hear this music. And he's throwing his old hips around, and he had double-jointed shoulders. The only thing I inherited from my father was a pair of double-jointed thumbs. And some night, when I get my big chance on the Ed Sullivan Show, I'm going to throw both my thumbs out of joint, just like that. Be bigger than the Beatles. The old man would throw his shoulders out of joint, and chung, 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 and the women would go, ah, oh, oh, wow, oh. And the men would all go. grab a chick, and my mother's always watching, you know, with a kind of white look on her face. He'd grab a chick, and he'd swing her around. And he'd pat her, you know. And, and the lady would always go. That was showbiz in Hammond, Indiana. Terrible. I don't know why I'm doing this for you tonight. Speaking of... Uh, of uh, the low-down snake. Oh, this is WORAM and uh, FM New York. Hit the little button there, Mario, please. Brace yourself for greatness. The book the world could not lay down is now a motion picture. <laughs> the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Starring Richard Burton as Lemus, who never found a man he could trust. 
You've broken the bloody agreement, and barring miracles, you've broken my bloody neck, too. Or a woman, either. Alec Lemus was your lover, wasn't he? Yes. Have you had many lovers, Nancy? The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. The story of the spy as he really is. A man who knows the dirt as well as the dazzle. Paramount Pictures presents Richard Burton, Claire Bloom, and Oscar Werner in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, a Martin Ritt production. Uh, it's bloody bad. It's tomorrow, premiere tomorrow at the DeMille and Cornet Theater. Oh, did you get that? Or could you understand it? Well, nobody can understand the English, uh, even the English. Sometimes grow up and never talk to each other for years. All right, hit the, hit the little button there. You got another one in there, Dad? There she comes. Oh, this is that beersy one, huh? Miller High Life is... See this stuff in purple can. glass. It lights up. All right. Oh, right up. Distinctive <laughs> Miller High Life in oh, pop and pour cans. We're getting nuttier by the minute this world, I'll tell you. Just pop and pour Just Miller High Life, the pull. champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. Enjoy the light, full-flavored goodness of Miller High Life. The premium beer millions more are asking for. They're yelling for it. Granola beer for granola! Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Unequal, unquestioned, unchanging. Enjoy Miller High Life in our easier-to-open pop-and-pour cans. Just pop-and-pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive in pop-and-pour cans. Now, uh, you have another one of those little tapies in there? Boy, are we loaded. Well, before we do that, why don't we do the Rover spot here? The Rover 2000. And um, I again repeat my offer if you'd like to see pictures of this uh, beautiful, magnificently designed English automobile. A Gran Turismo type. Maybe you'll get an idea of just what they mean by uh, Gran Turismo and why this car is possibly one of the best designed automobiles ever put on the mass market. Just send me a card and address it to Rover here. That's me. I'm old Rover here. Uh, send it to Rover, W-O-R, 1440 Broadway, and we'll send you pictures of this car. And by the way, there will be no... You're not going to be put on any sales list. None of, none of that jazz. Uh, nobody will come pounding on your darkening at 3 o'clock in the morning. Hey! We're here for the Rover! You want to take the Rover? No, nobody's uh, going to be hanging you there out to string and dry. Uh, if you would like to have these pictures, just send your name and address to Rover, R-O-V-V-V-E-R, -V -V -E Rover, W-O-R, 1440, Broadway, uh, W-O-R spelled with an H and an E. Hit the little button there. <laughs> now, Joseph... You didn't lay a glove on that, there. Marcello Mastriani against Ursula Andrews. He makes all the movies that come out of Europe. Tenth victim, an unusual comedy about guns, lovers, and the hunt. The game that separates the men from the makes 28 movies a week. Targets for the girls. The tenth Marcello Mastriani victim. Marcello Mastriani as the prey. Who has his Marcello Mastriani? Ursula Andrews as the hunter. Whose game for anything? Game for anything. Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andres in The Tenth Victim, a Carlo Ponte production from Embassy Pictures in Color. The Tenth Victim, all about things to come and ways to go.
<laughs> now playing at Lincoln Art and Lowe's Tower East Theaters. We once again return to the world of reality. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. Holy smokes, we've got another one. Boy, are we loaded tonight. What is this? Christmas trees, Bill? Oh, I forgot the old electronic workshop. Let's see. No, they're closed now. They better be. Uh, we have uh, the electronic workshop on hand, and if you're hearing a lot of funny noises out of your radio, you're either listening to the wrong station or you should visit the electronic workshop. We don't have funny noises here. These are all artfully contrived noises. <laughs> Oh, what is that? Super regeneration, uh, crying out my oscillation in the final stage, everything. We have a uh, electronic workshop, and they're at 26 West 8th Street in the village. The village. And uh, if you would like to see their magnificent KLH equipment, they're on hand. By the way, all jesting aside, if uh, you're going to pop this Christmas, uh, or if you already have, for, uh, for hi-fi equipment, I'm sorry for you if you haven't done it at the electronic workshop. But they'll be glad to maintain it for you. And if after a couple of weeks it blows up, they'll trade it in on some stuff. And uh, they'll be there Christmas, too, which ain't the truth of a lot of outfits, you know. This is the Electronic Workshop, 26 West A Street. And uh, their number is Gramercy 3014. Okay. Very good. Now, we return once again. You know, that uh, that reminds me. I don't know why I, I'm... Uh, of course, uh, I, I have to admit that I plan to tell you this story. I might as well tell it to you. But uh, the idea of the snake dance used to embarrass me when I was a kid. And they they would they would uh, this is this is the time of the year when kids are already developing that buzz in the ear, uh, you know that 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 kind of bored, awful feeling because they're going to have to be stuck in bedrooms, and uh, when the big type people the parents are going to the parties, and they stick them in the bedroom and they pile seventeen coats on top of you, fur coats that smell like all kind of powder and perfume and tobacco and, and uh, you know, stuff and cat fur and everything. And you're laying there underneath all these, <laughs> underneath all these, uh, these, these coats. And somebody invariably hollers. Uh, usually it's uh, one of the official type ladies. Uh, she opens the door, slams it open and says, now go to sleep. And you're laying there. And uh, there's about 28 other kids scattered around. Some of them are stuck under the day bed and they're piled up on top of the coats like cordwood. And there's whispering and yelling and pinching and stuff. And somebody says, shut up and go to sleep, will you, in there? And it's the big New Year's party. And they slam the door. And then you hear all this, this raucous, wild laughter and swilling and bottles falling and people yelling. And, and then in the next room, you hear a lady is being chased into the room by somebody else's husband. You hear a lot of giggling and hollering again. And then, then you start hearing people telling these, you know, they, they start telling these stories. And once in a while, somebody hollers out and says, shh, the kids can hear Boy and how <laughs> the kids are really here and see, and, 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 and it's oh wow, what a boring time. Well, every time that this would happen, about halfway through the party, I'd hear somebody hollering about the snake dance, and I would be alternately embarrassed because my old man danced the snake dance, or I would be delighted because my old man was a big smasheroo sockeroo in showbiz. You know, I think all kids whose father are in showbiz feel that way. I've known several children. Uh, grown-up types, as a matter of fact, whose father was, you know, big star, big singing star, big, big musical star. They were both, uh, they were both proud of the old man, and at the same time embarrassed. 
You know, it's it's kind of embarrassing to see the old man up there wearing grease paint, and he's got all little pink cheeks, and he's singing, "Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't meet maybe. Yes, sir." Somehow that you know it isn't quite right. Well, on one of those particular parties, and I'll have to I'll have to tell you this story about about the the, the great night. It just it was between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, we got this call. My mother got a call. And uh, we were supposed to go over and visit my Aunt Min. And the reason we were supposed to go over and visit my Aunt Min was because my Aunt Min was celebrating the uh, breaking in of her new, big, fantastic, unbelievable Christmas present. And, uh, and, and she didn't tell us what it was. She says, Carl surprised me. I will never forget it. Carl was our drunken uncle. And uh, Uncle Carl never had more than $2 ever to rub together. And whenever he did have two dollars to rub together, he rubbed them together down at the Bluebird Tavern. And he kept them there and tried to light a little fire with them. You know, he'd rub the two dollars and finally the fire would be lit. It would be lit by drinking two and a half gallons of Sneaky Pete, which he bought for the two dollars. And so Uncle Carl was also, like many drunks, a fantastically sentimental type. And primarily because he was always feeling this little sense of, of uh, I suppose it was connected with... Uh, Conscience. He always felt. Uh, he always felt that somehow he shouldn't be sitting down at the Bluebird for six weeks straight, or laying down at the Bluebird for six weeks straight down there among all those feet. <laughs> He'd be down there, and so so every every couple of months, Uncle Carl would make a grand gesture, a fantastic gesture, like he'd take the whole family out one night, all seventeen of his kids. He'd take Aunt Min on this big gesture and buy them all ice cream cones, just take them out just like that, or go down and buy them all chop suey. Uh, take them to Chinese restaurant, and everyone, everyone would know that she would my, immediately. My aunt, my aunt Min would call up the next day, and the phone would ring. My mother would pick up the phone. She says, "Hello, oh hello, Min." She always expected, uh, you know, he, it, there were two kinds of calls we got from Aunt Min. It was like, uh, "Oh hello, Min." What? No, no, we haven't seen him. Three weeks? Oh, I wouldn't worry about it. The last time it wasn't it wasn't the last time six, seven weeks like that. Oh, I see, huh? You mean even Charlie hasn't seen them? Well, I wouldn't worry about it. No, he'll be all right, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, okay, if he staggers past here, we'll try and grab him, yeah, on the way past. Yeah, I'll tell all the kids to watch out for him, yeah. He may be under the porch. Yeah, okay. That was that one. Now, that was one call. The other call was, hello. Oh, yes, Min? Oh, isn't that nice? He did... Really? He bought all... Bought all the kids ice cream cones? Uh-huh. Oh, isn't that nice? Carl's so wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Chop suey? Oh, how nice. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, uh, look, is he home now? I'll put him on. Oh. I see. Uh-huh. Well, don't worry. He'll be home tonight. Uh-huh. Oh, he did, huh? Well, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that was very nice about the ice cream cone. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, if we see him, we'll send them home. Yes. Well, those were the two calls that we got in our house from Uncle, the Uncle Carl Menage. Well, one, one, <laughs> one holiday, there was this call. Hello? He did what? Oh. Uh, yes. Yes, we'd be glad that, yes. See, my mother had one rule. My father hated like he was out of his mind to go over there. He hated like he was out of his skull to see Aunt Min. 
And so there was a standard rule in the house. Do not ever commit yourself to go over to see men unless you check with headquarters, meaning the old man. And so my mother's on the phone. Oh, yes. Yes, men. What? Well, just a minute. I'll see. Yeah, he's down in the basement. And she puts her hand over the, over the, over the mic, you know, over the, over the receiver. She says, hey, men wants us to come over tonight. I can't tell her that. Now, come on. Look, it's, it's been over a year, yes. Well, now, look, Carl gave her a surprise. And she wants us to see it. Well, all right, I'll tell her. Yes. Only an hour, all right. Hello, men? He says he'd love to. Yes, he's so happy. Yes, he just says he'd love to come over. It's been so long. Yes, uh-huh. All right. Yeah, tonight at 7. Well, we'll if we see him on the street, we'll bring him with us. Yes. Okay. All right. He's wearing his blue suit? Okay. All right. Clink. Oh, yes, many's the time uh, we used to see, uh, as kids, we used to just track Uncle Carl around. How many of you as kids, when you were when you were a kid, because this is an urban kid thing, kids in the country go out and track rabbits. You know, that's sure, you know, kids Saturday afternoon, they go looking for rabbits, or they track beavers, I presume, or they track elks, I suppose, or moose, or meese, or whatever it is. They track, when we were kids, we would go out and track drunks. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? It'd be like eight and eight or nine o'clock at night, and there'd be a whole pack of us would go out, and we would just walk around the streets, and all of a sudden you'd see this door slam open on the Bluebird or the or the uh, Lucky Tiger Inn or something like that. You'd see the Schlitz Restory, you know, boom, the door opens, and hey, stay out, you bum! And this guy would come reading, and we would trail him down the street. He's weaving. And we would track drunks, and we would we would compare various great drunks we had tracked, various things they did. Oh, they did wild stuff, you know, doorways, everything. They'd fist fight. They'd be stand. One drunk, you know, one drunk in particular was our favorite drunk. He used to have a fist fight. Nobody around. There'd be nobody for miles around, and he's squaring off. He's fist fighting. What are you saying? And he'd get hit. Bang! He'd get hit, he'd stagger back, uh, hit and ball the belly, you son of a gun. And he, you know, we'd love it. We'd, we'd walk around. It was better than the movies or anything. We were drunk trackers. Well, more than once, uh, the whole pack would be tracking Uncle Carl. Uncle Carl was a singing drunk. And uh, he always forgot his banjo when he'd go out to get drunk. But he never knew that he forgot it. So he would play it. And Uncle Carl's playing, you'd finger his banjo, he'd say, yeah, that's true, that's my baby, that's my baby, and his teeth would flap, yeah, he lost his teeth one time, oh, that was a terrible scene. And we had to track Uncle Carl. So on this particular night, we got in the car, and we drove over to Aunt Min's house, and my kid brother's yelling and hollering. Every time we go out for a visit, he would throw a fit and lay on the bottom of the floor of the car and kick his shoes off and all that stuff. My mother would just drag him in by his galoshes and just throw him in the back of the car, and he'd lay there and scream. And so we are on our way to Aunt Min. Well, I'm going to describe to you a, a, a gifty. Uh, incidentally, I have seen that same gift in the windows of Salvation Army stores since. But we arrived at Aunt Min's house, and Aunt Min is all, you know, she's got her new apron on, and she's beaming, and she, her store teeth are clicking and clacking away, and, and the kids, about 28 kids, hiding around her feet and all. And she says, now you come on in, come on into the living room here. She says, here, now give me your coats. There. Uh, would any of you like um, some coffee, tea, anything? <laughs> of course, Uncle Carl is out. 
He's staggering along some distant curb way someplace, up some distant alley. He's out there fist fighting against uh, unseen enemies and singing songs, reading music that wasn't there, and he's playing his banjo that was still in the closet, and he, you know, the whole bit. And and <laughs> and Ambien says, "Come on in now." And she's got the she's got the room dark. We go into the living room, and they lived in this little this little tiny what they call a St. Louis apartment in Chicago. Have you ever heard of a St. Louis apartment? It was an over and under apartment. Most cities have what they call duplexes. Where, you know, one apartment is right next to the other apartment in a single building. That's called a duplex. Well, the St. Louis building is over and under. It's got the, an apartment on the top, an apartment on the bottom, and it's got outside steps that go to the top building. That's called a St. Louis building. Don't ask me why. That's what it's called. And they lived in this St. Louis apartment. And there was always a lot of trouble about that. They lived on the bottom of the St. Louis apartment. And Uncle Carl always, whenever he'd get tanked, would think that they lived on the top. And he would go staggering up these steps, and he'd try to get into the top apartment. That's another story. I'll tell you about that. The <laughs> with, uh, I'll tell you about the Falpels, the time that he came in and uh, stayed there for three days when he was, they were gone. But that, that's another scene. Uncle, Uncle Carl, yeah, they didn't know where he was. He was there sleeping in the Falpels. They weren't there. They were in the old country or something. But Uncle Carl always used to come down those stairs, and he'd fall down the stairs, and he'd roll up against the doorway there. And so this night, uh, it was nice and, and warm. She had the house all heated. You could smell the coffee going. She was getting ready to entertain us. And uh, yet, like, like most ladies who, whose husbands are confirmed drunks, she always pretended that he wasn't. He was always a little sick. She'd say, uh, you know, Carl isn't feeling very well. Yes, he went down to Dr. Slicker's. Well, Dr. Slicker was the bartender at the Bluebird. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, where he got his medication. And so we we arrived we arrived this day and and into into the into the into the living room we go we're all sitting around there. I remember this so clearly because it was one of those it was one of those great moments in the family history. It's still talked about. They date things before and after the acquisition of this gift in in the in the saga of Uncle Carl. Well, Uncle Carl had had a fantastic fit of conscience, and Christmas came up. New Year's, the whole thing, you know, and Uncle Carl every year, like all drunks or all people who are involved in things like that, they all vaguely say, this year I'm going to go straight. This year it's going to be different. Oh, I was so rotten this past year, just so terrible, a rotten person. And so he had scraped together some dough and saved it where nobody really knew, but he had scraped it together and got this gift. We're sitting on Aunt Min's sofa and... Uh, we're all waiting in there, and she comes in with a tray with coffee and cookies and milk and stuff, and she says, "Now watch, okay? I'll sit now. Now be quiet." She says, "Now just wait a minute now," and she goes over to the other side of the room. It's dark, absolutely. The place is pitch black. It's one thing about St. Louis apartments because the buildings next to them are right up against each other. There's no no light comes in. It's black as the ace of spades. And she says, "Now watch." And she reaches over. Would you give me a little romantic music, please? She reaches over, and you hear a switch. The switch goes on, and instantly, there it is, lighting up the whole end of the room. Uncle Carl had gotten for Aunt Min an artificial imitation synthetic fireplace. And it just lit up there at the end and had one of these artificial synthetic grates. And in the grates, 
there were these little black pieces of glass that looked exactly like coal. Have you ever seen one of those? And they were lit up with a red light inside. And somehow it was some kind of imitation flame that they looked like they were flickering. And we sat there and Aunt Min said, a fireplace. Carl got it for us. And my mother said, isn't that beautiful? A real fireplace. And my father says, you know, you can almost, you can almost feel that it's warm. Isn't that amazing? Looks just like flames. And immediately my kid brother runs over and sticks his finger in there. Wow! He was, wow! Look at this! And I go over and I look. And all the rest of the kids who are all standing around. And Edmund says, now don't touch it now. That's Carl's Christmas gift. Isn't that beautiful? The artificial? Isn't that just wonderful? It has a mantle, please. Now watch. I'll turn the lights on. And she turned all her bridge lamps on. And on the mantelpiece, there was a picture. A dime store gold frame. And out of it, in that, you know, those tinted photographs that you get at the dime store? Out of it was looking Uncle Carl. In his blue suit. Bright blue. It was electric blue, you know, lit up there. And his hair was real gold, for some reason or other. He had this big grin, and his teeth were white. And Uncle Carl, that was the one day they caught him between drunks. And they took a quick picture of him. And now it's in that frame. And he's looking out from the top of the mantelpiece next to a vase. Now, the vase, by the way, if you're interested, was given to Aunt Min by my grandmother, who gave this Christmas gift to everybody in the family for years. She would take a pickle jar, a Heinz pickle jar, and she would line it with little pieces of red and green and yellow tissue paper that she had taken from the inside of Christmas card envelopes of the year before. And she would paint little black lines around it, little gold things, and that was the vase. And sticking out of the vase, there were four wax peonies reaching for the sky. It was Midwestern beauty in full flower. The artificial fireplace roared. Uncle Carl beamed out of his Woolworth frame. And the four wax peonies reached for the sun in the St. Louis apartment. sat around and drank the coffee and I drank the milk my kid brother drank the milk by the way it was the only quarter milk they'd had for a month and a half we ate the fig newtons and talked about what a beautiful fantastic fireplace this was and then at 10 o'clock we got back in the car and drove home American family life among the peasantry. Oh, of course it is. Let's face it. I mean, this is a unrecorded. I never have read anybody write about anything like that in fiction. That, and we've all lived through it, right, Mario? That kind of thing. Uh, I have never seen any of this uh, this kind of of, uh, of American life written about or reported as though it never occurred. And there it was. And for years, Aunt Min had her fireplace. 
And whenever there was big moments in the family, she never used it to, you know, she didn't, she didn't want the bulb to burn out. She had an idea if she used it too much, the bulb would burn out and no one would know how to fix it. And uh, so whenever there were moments of high state occasion, like uh, a wedding or a funeral or a big bridge party or something when they'd all come over to men's house and drink coffee or beer, on big, really high moments, Aunt Min would walk to the other end of the room and she'd throw the switch and on would come the fireplace. And everyone would say, isn't that just beautiful? Why don't we get one of those? Why don't we just get one of those? And my father would say, you know, gee, sometime we ought to. And then my Aunt Min would always say the same thing. She'd say, you know, Carl gave that to us one Christmas. I'll never forget. That was a gift from Carl, you know. She used to say that after Carl had left. One time, you want to know what happened to Carl? One night, after Aunt Min had thrown his teeth, he got his teeth from the relief. He, he, one time, came home, you know, he was down at the Bluebird having a great time, and Aunt Min had a, she was fantastically angry one night. And she took his teeth and threw them down the air shaft. And they never found them. A couple of days later, Uncle Carl was sitting there, and Aunt Min says, Look, I want you to go down to the delicatessen and get 15 cents worth of summer sausage, sliced thin. He said, All right. He was gumming all his words in those days. And he headed out for the store, turned left at the corner of, uh, of Crawford Avenue and Irving Park, and never came back. Just kept right on going. They say he headed for China. Never was heard from again. And for years, Aunt Mid would say, that's uh, the fireplace that Carl gave us one Christmas. Isn't that beautiful? It's just so lovely. And he would look out from the top of that mantelpiece with his blue coat for year on year on year next to those four magnificent wax peonies.